0: The Massachusetts Institute of Technology, often known as MIT, reportedly hosted a lecture this week entitled, Is Islamophobia Accelerating Global Warming? I am not making this up. The talk was to be given by Gassan Haji, future generation professor of anthropology and social theory at Melbourne University. I'm not making that up either. Now, you may laugh or mock or scorn or howl like an hysterical hyena while rolling on the floor, gripping your stomach, and screaming, Goss and Haji, what kind of a stupid sounding name is that? Then you may roll over onto your stomach and pound the carpet with your fists, unable to control your boundless mirth while reflecting that tuition at MIT is $45,000 a year, and that doesn't even include the 13 grand for room and board plus books, so some poor schnook of a dad in Kansas is looking at shelling out 60 big ones a year or nearly a quarter million dollars overall to have his kid listen to a guy named Gassan Haji talk about Islamophobia and global warming. But let's get serious for a minute and see what Gassan Haji has not I mean, has to say. According to Professor Gaji Waji, the talk, quote, examines the relation between Islamophobia as the dominant form of racism today and the ecological crisis. And I think as adults, we can all stop laughing and grabbing our crotches while making grotesque, pseudo-sexual gestures with our hips long enough to study this issue carefully. After all, Islamophobia and the ecological crisis have many things in common. For one thing, they're both imaginary constructs meant to scam gullible buffoons into exchanging the successful values and practices of Western culture for the violent and bigoted stupidity of overweening slave states. And for another thing, they both contain the letter I. Professor Haji Gaji goes on to propose that Islamophobia and the ecological crisis, and I'm not making this quote up, are both emanating from a similar mode of being or enmeshment in the world, what is referred to as generalized domesticate, domestication, unquote. For those of you who don't speak blithering obfuscation, this essentially means that a phobia, which is defined as an irrational fear of Islamics, who are defined as screaming madmen with ridiculous beards, causes the ecology, which is defined as your surroundings, to go into crisis, which is defined as a suicide bomb blowing your head into the train station waiting room while your arms and legs go sailing out into the street. Now, many of you who are conservative or stodgy may find Professor Waji Gaji dodgy, but in fact, according to his CV, he's held many visiting positions, such as his mother's couch, a post at Harvard, or in the Starbucks right near Harvard. And of course, taking money from boneheads to give absurd talks on nonsense subjects. So in consideration, I think anyone with a respectful and serious approach toward higher education can safely say $60,000 a year in a pig's eye. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Klavan, and this is The Andrew Klavan Show. One day, this week, we're going to get through a monologue without cracking up. <laughs> just, is, it, is this a professional operation or not? Oh, not. I'm sorry. I, I, just, I was just wondering. All right. That is a real story. That was a genuine speech that this guy gave, and that is Gazan Haji is, is his name. He sounds like a terrorist. He's like, you know, This is. I want to talk about how my suicide bomb is going to affect global warming when I blow you all up. All right. So... Here we are again. It is ti- time t- for us to ask you to subscribe. And subscribe even, you know, if you subscribe, you can watch the show, but even if you can't watch, because I listen to podcasts in the car, because I'm in LA, I spend most of my life in my car, and I, that's where I listen to the podcast. But even if you can't watch it, supports us, and it gives you a chance to get in the mailbag, because today is our first mailbag. Yay, yay, we're gonna answer some of your questions at toward the end of the show in the first ever mailbag, and we're gonna talk about the primaries last night, but first, there is this other thing I have to bring up. I've been wanting to bring this up all week, this thing about Facebook. Have you heard this? That Facebook is, has been censoring conservative opinion. What they do is they, well, I'll read it. They, Gizmodo had the story. It says, Facebook workers routinely suppressed news stories of interest to conservative readers from the social network's influential trending news section, according to a former journalist who worked on the project. This individual says that workers prevented stories about the right-wing CPAC gathering, Mitt Romney, Rand Paul, and other conservative topics from appearing in the highly influential section, even though they were organically trending among the site's users. Several former Facebook news curators, as they were known internally, also told Gizmodo that they were instructed to artificially inject selected stories into the trending news module even if they weren't popular enough to warrant inclusion, or in some cases weren't trending at all. The former curators, all of whom worked as contractors, also said they were directed not to include news about Facebook itself in the trending module. Which, well, let's let's just play, Facebook has denied this and they read their statement on the Five. Just play the Facebook uh, answer to this.
1: We take allegations of bias very seriously. Facebook is a platform for people and perspectives from across the political spectrum. There are rigorous guidelines in place for the review team to ensure consistency and neutrality. These guidelines do not permit the suppression of political perspectives.
0: Now. Let me just respond to that. They're lying. They are lying. Facebook does this. Facebook definitely suppresses conservative thought, and they they suppress rational conservative thought. They have done it here to us at the Daily Wire. We had a page that went up, that had the way the way they work is, they basically say that your thought itself transgresses the the boundaries of decency. So if you come out and you say, you know. I think there are problems with the Islamic religion. They say, well, that doesn't live up to our standards. Or especially if you make a joke about it, and especially if the joke is funny and true, you are very likely to get banned. This has been a problem for my pal Steve Crowder. He is absolutely furious about it, and he says they've been kind of jerking him around on their billing as well. He put out a story. uh, He put out a statement that says he's one of the. He's got one of the most popular conservative podcasts on the air. I mean, this is uh, this is hard for us to believe because we know Steve, but uh, <laughs> you know he's really funny and he does a great podcast. And he said this the Gizmodo.com story coincides with and now potentially provides an explanation for. Facebook's mismanagement of payments made to Facebook by Mr. Crowder and its woefully biased and unprofessional treatment of his accounts during an ongoing billing dispute. So they've really been jerking him around. Greg Gutfeld, I thought, had the best reaction on The Five. He heard about this. This is his response, why they're doing it
2: the reason why they don't want it there is because it always wins wherever restrictions are removed conservative thought takes over if you think about the if you think about talk radio in 1987 when when all of a sudden that those restrictions were gone rush limbaugh took over when the internet became a thing. What was the biggest site? Drudge Report, mm-hmm. cable news, CNN for a little while, then all of a sudden, boom, Fox News comes in, becomes number one. Wherever restrictions are pulled, conservative thought takes over because it's thought.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is, and this is why, by the way, the seizing of our culture by the left is our fault. If we fought back, if we fought back fearlessly, if we didn't worry about what the New York Times thinks. Listen to the way the New York Times covers this story, okay? The New York Times, a former newspaper who actually has editors go on television with their faces hanging out and say that they cover the news Equally, they cover the news without bias. They really do believe this, or at least they have hypnotized themselves into believing it. This is their headline. Conservatives accuse Facebook of political bias. This is the New York Times. They couldn't go out and check it out. They couldn't run, you know, they couldn't, they they got 500 reporters. They had parachute into Sarah Palin's underwear drawer to see, you know, what she was up to, but they can't go and check out a, a story about the biggest online social media and whether it is screwing one side of the political conversation. This, this thing about conserv- This is so typical. If Hillary Clinton went out and knifed a baby to death on the street, just said, oh, that's a nice baby. I think I'll kill it and just stab. If that if Hillary Clinton did that, the headline in The New York Times would be "Conservatives seize on Clinton murder to promote their values. That's what it would be because they know what their readers, their six readers are thinking, what their six readers are thinking would be "Oh." Rotten conservatives, you know, this is terrible. They they always do this. They always play off our mistakes and use them. So that's their headline. Conservatives accuse Facebook of political bias. Their Their lead is Facebook scrambled on Monday to respond to a new and startling line of attack. Accusations of political bias if there was a conservative in america who was startled by this line of attack i don't know who it was what you know why you, know why? you don't know I, I, I use my computer every day and i put the coal in it and pump it up and i've never seen any kind of bias but you'd have to be goofy not to see <laughs> that, that this is going on you know the way the way this works by the way on twitter these, these alt-right guys who are threatening to throw Jews into the gas chamber, they're not censored at all because they don't mind when right-wingers sound obscene and horrible. You know, I was on NPR once. NPR is this far, far left-wing station. They don't know they are. They don't think they are, but they are. And whenever you hear a conservative on NPR, he has a southern accent and really bad grammar. So they'll say, you know, conservative expert. You know, Hi, ah, yes, I'm a conservative. Yes, I am, and I, I believe in, you know, you, but you, if you have a, if you have an abortion, you know, you are going to hell on the spot. You know, that's the conservative they'll have on NPR. One day, by mistake, they had me on, and they had me on to debate Dick Cavett, the old talk show host, who is a, a reliable, intellectual-sounding liberal. And I can say without fear of bias whatsoever, I took Cavett apart. I mean, I just dismantled the guy. You can Google this. I can't remember the name of the host, unfortunately, but it is online somewhere. You can Google it. I took Cavett apart. I mean, just dissected him. By the end of it, he was saying there should be no free speech in America, and free speech was a mistake. Even the host was going, Dick, are you abandoning democracy? You know, I mean, that was the the thing. Afterwards, the producer called me up and said, what did you think of the show? And I said— I thought you, you'll never have me back on. And he said, no, we loved you. We're gonna call you all the time. I said, no, you'll never have me back on because I took your guy apart and I sound like a reasonable person and I have a good education and I speak well and you'll never have a conservative like that on the air. No, we're gonna call you all the time. I've never heard, this is like three years ago at least. I mean, I've never heard from them again. And that's how they do it. That's how they edit out conservative opinion. You know, they don't, they don't just have to silence you. They just find the dumbest conservative they can find to represent your ideas. All right, primaries. Hillary Clinton, <laughs> she can't win this thing. Did You see the post? You have the post cover. Look at this post. Stop the coronation. Uh, Bernie Sanders beats her, cleaned her clock, basically, in West Virginia, and he isn't giving up. Play Sanders' victory speech. We are
1: going to fight for every last vote in Oregon, Kentucky, California, the Dakotas. Now we fully acknowledge, we are good in arithmetic, that we have an uphill climb ahead of us. But we are used to fighting uphill climbs. We have been fighting uphill from the first day of this campaign when people considered us a fringe candidacy
0: anyone consider that a fringe candidacy? She's being beaten by the walking dead. She's being, you know, they open his coffin. He can only do his victory speech at night because they have to open his coffin. He goes, yes, I'm back and I'm winning. You know, I mean, West Virginia is coal country. And she made that stupid statement where she said we're going to close all the coal companies down and put all the coal miners out of work. And, you know, some of them may may have resented that. Who knows? You know, but they're voting for for Sanders, who's going to do exactly the same thing. I mean, he's no, he's no friend to the coal industry. Here is a new poll, Quinnipiac University swing state poll. This is from USA Today, reported in USA Today, released Tuesday, has Clinton up a single point in both Florida and Pennsylvania against Donald Trump. Okay, Trump leads Clinton in Ohio. These are the these are the big swing states. These are the states that decide. We could just let them vote because they're the ones who decide the election. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida. She is clinging, clinging to a 1% lead, which, given the margin error, is no lead. Here's the guy from Quinnipiac. He says, six months from Election Day, the presidential races between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the three most crucial states, Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, are too close to call. And Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders has narrow leads over Trump in all three pivotal states. You know, uh, well, even even Joe Biden is still keeping his finger in. You know, he he was on— I can't remember what this is. This is no, it's ABC. And uh, he, listen to him. He's still thinking about it.
2: Well, yeah, I think he has been underestimated from the beginning. But I also think that it's really very, very early. But I think what's going to happen here is that the constant attack coming from the Republican side, the sort of vitriol that's pouring out, I don't think it's going to wear well over the next uh several months. So I, I feel confident that Hillary will be the nominee and I feel confident she'll be the next president. No regrets? I know that before you said that you didn't run, that you knew that it was the right decision for your it, family. Look, I, I had planned on running. Um, it's an awful thing to say. Uh, I, I think I would have been the best president. But um, it was the right thing, not just for my family, for me. Uh, I, No one should ever seek the presidency unless they're able to devote their whole heart and soul and passion into just doing that. And um, Beau was my soul. I just wasn't ready to be able to do that.
0: So, you know, Beau, his son died of cancer, which obviously transcends all politics. And so now Biden is heading up Obama's bipartisan fight against cancer. But that sounded to me like he's sort of waiting in the wings. I mean, he is waiting in the wings, you know. And, and, and other candidates are getting in. We have, we have like one new candidate who's, uh, who's offering his, his services.
1: Good evening. I am Lord Darthos. And I am here to announce my candidacy for President of the United States. Now, to answer the question that you're undoubtedly thinking, Yes, I am a vampire, but this is the 21st century. We are a vast diverse nation and there's no reason that the walking undead should be excluded from our political conversation. There are many challenges facing us in this dangerous world, and I look forward to explaining to you my platform and my goals for this nation over the next few days. It's time that we ask ourselves, should the United States be led by an evil, blood-sucking creature of the night, or by a vampire? (laughs)
0: That's a perfectly reasonable question, given our choices. So, Lord, I may go with Lord Darthos. He may be my guy. You know, it's funny. Last night, I was out, at a gathering with a bunch of Hollywood political types, you know, uh, people who are in mostly in show business or around show business, but are interested in politics, and we're all sort of, you know, obviously conservative. We're all sort of talking over things, and the funny thing is, is when most people who know politics and observe politics and are in the business of of predicting what's going to happen and commenting on it, they go with the obvious thing. They think that you know there was a there was a headline when Trump won the nomination or essentially won the nomination that said, man who is ahead in polls for 10 months wins. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's, Because that's what usually happens in politics. But because these people are from Hollywood and because they're all storytellers, they always think like the most extraordinary thing is going to happen. So a, a conversation with Hollywood political people sounds like people going like, I think what's going to happen is Bernie Sanders is going to take Hillary Hostage, and after a running gun battle with the police, uh, you know, uh, maybe an alien will land or something and take over Joe Biden's body, and that, and the thing is, more and more it sounds like that is exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> like it doesn't, it makes it makes perfect sense, you know. And I, I just think this is such a black swan election it is so different than everything everybody's commentary you can sort of see how it might just go another way and all of us all of the people sitting around this table because they're all storytellers feel and I'm I'm included in this we all feel there's a beat missing from this story. You know, I mean, the, the drama has been insane, you know, Trump and the Hillary and the, investi- the FBI investigation and Crazy Bernie, as Trump now accurately calls him, Crazy Bernie, is, you know, still still in this race and uh, Antonin Scalia dying so that suddenly the Supreme Court became this huge, huge deal. I mean, it was anyway, but suddenly we can see that we've lost the deciding conservative vote on the court. And so it's just it, and it feels like there's there's one, more you know, if, if life imitates Hollywood, as it so often does, if life imitates storytelling, it feels like there's one more big thing coming and I can't, none of us, you know, we, it, the most obvious one would be an indictment. The most obvious one would be Hillary getting indicted, but the way she's coughing all the time, she could fall over, you know, I mean, it could be anything. And, and Trump, who knows, the guy's such a loose cannon, he could do anything. So more, more to come. It's, it is not over. And the one good thing that I see about Trump's nomination and the fact that the Republican primaries are essentially over is that now, even through the gloating about how divided Republicans are, even the left is going to have to see what a terrible, terrible candidate they are putting forward. All right, we're going to try the mailbag. This is it. Hey, it's a big. It's our experiment. So make your questions good, because if they're not, we're coming. To, we actually will come to your house, and uh, there'll be you know repercussions. Uh, all right, our first our first question is from Mark, and the question is, and I get this que- I wanted to answer this question because I get it all the time. I get this letter. I, I don't know. You know, I won't say once a week, but frequently. How do I fight feminism? I am single and feel like the only way to not. To to be is to just turn over the keys to everything. I assume he means to women. Just let women control everything. And the reason I get asked this question is because I've now lived through the three waves of feminism, and I haven't changed one bit. <laughs> I'm still I'm still an open sexist. I am when I say sexist, I mean I believe very deeply that men and women are different. That they have different functions in societies. They have different capabilities and desires and needs. You know, so I I cling to that. I cling to my idea that a man should be a gentleman and treat women as ladies, whether they are ladies or not. I think you should treat them in the hope that they are ladies. You know, I've, I've maintained all that, and I've maintained a certain kind of in-relationships. I sort of feel the most the healthiest relationships I've ever seen. A man is a strong presence, if not the leader of the family. I think basically i be more open about it. I think the man should be a, a leader in his family. So I've maintained all my opinions throughout all this and, and openly expressed them. And, you know, there's nothing sticking out of my neck yet that I, that I know, so I'm still here. So that's why I think I get asked this question. And I will tell you, there are three, three simple rules. One, you have to have courage. And this is, I think, beyond, beyond all these questions about dealing with the left. People want to say what they're really asking is how can I fight feminism without getting hurt? <laughs> you, know, you can't. Be a man be a man have courage stand for what you stand for know what you believe stand for it express it say it openly say it to whoever asks you don't ever lie about it that's you know that's just one one basic rule of life the other is don't react you know don't be a reactionary if if mo- most women are i mean women are terrific people they're much nicer than men most of the time some of the best people i know and my favorite people are women you know it's like you're you're reacting to somebody on a television screen that you don't know screaming things at you. If that's what you're reacting to some some broad on YouTube, you know, who can't keep her mouth shut, why are you reacting to that? If you're going out with a woman like that, stop going out with her. You know? I mean, if you have a woman like that at work, deal with her. Deal with her, but don't react to her. Don't become don't begin begin to think like, "Oh, women are terrible." You know, don't don't do the David Mamet thing that he used to do in his old plays where the women were all these conniving bitches and ha- hating people and all that. You know, don't do it. And the third thing is know thyself, know what you want, you know, and because there are, two, there are two realms of dealing with feminism. One is the professional and one is the personal. In the professional realm, be a gentleman, be a professional. You know, I have worked with women and I've worked for women, and just like men, some of them are good at what they do, some of them are bad at what they do. You react to them according to their work. When you are doing work, it's all about the work. Don't make it personal ever. You know, that's a perfectly good rule. But in relationships, what I see young guys doing Is I see young guys giving the store away, you know, like their girlfriend will go off on some rap about equality, and they'll agree with her, you know. I think a man and woman in a relationship should be equal. And then you're stuck in that relationship, and both of you are going to be unhappy. So don't do it. Know what you want. Know what your relationship looks like. Know what the, the good relationship in your future looks like, and ask for it. You know, if she doesn't want to give it to you, move on. Move on, dude. You know, it's like, so So courage, don't be a reactionary, and know thyself, and just, you know, don't, just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What are they going to do to you? What are they going to do to you? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, it's just life, you know, it's just the world. All right, so that's my answer, because I really do think I see guys selling their selling their lives away basically to get into bed with somebody, and there's always somebody else to get into bed with, and that's not a good reason to sell away your principles. All right, second question, named Dane. Dane, question, hey, Andrew, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and of yours and Ben's. I have a question comment. You said that there is no true freedom without religion. Now, I consider myself to be a true blue constitutional conservative I was a huge Cruz supporter. I have always believed in knowing right and wrong, respecting law enforcement and the law, but I used to be an atheist. Now I'm more open, and I'm leaning towards agnosticism. My question is, do you think that one actually needs to have religion or a belief in God to be a good person, to know right from wrong, to have a moral compass, and or to believe in justice? I've been in a few debates over this, and I was hoping to hear your opinion. Thanks, Andrew, and keep on keeping on. Easy answer. Of course not. Of course you don't have to believe in God to be a good person. I know plenty of atheists who are absolutely wonderful people. I know plenty of atheists who know right from wrong. Plenty, I know plenty of, you know, they're bad religious people. They're good religious people. You only have to believe in God if you want your opinions to make sense. That's the only thing. That's the only difference. If you want to believe in abs- in right and wrong that there is a reason why we do things a certain way and not another way, you have to believe in God if you want that opinion to make sense. The only honest atheist I have ever read is the Marquis de Sade and he was what he was the one he's the guy they named sadism after and he basically said If there's no God, then nature is the king. Follow your nature, which means the powerful should lord it over the weak. You should take pleasure from people even if they don't want to give it to you. You should hurt people if that's what gives you pleasure. Why not? That makes perfect sense to me. There's no argument against that unless there is an absolute good. And an absolute good can't just be some, like, Platonic ideal floating up in heaven it has to be a living consciousness because good is a conscious thing a hurricane may kill people but it's not bad you know i mean that uh, hur- you have to to be bad you have to make a decision to be bad the ultimate good has to be a consciousness that decides I will be good. I will do the good good thing. And that's God. So listen, you can be a great person. I know plenty of great people, plenty of great atheists, but none of them make sense when they talk about their ideals and why they believe what they believe. If you are an atheist, you should be a relativist. You should believe that a Muslim blowing up people or treating women badly in Saudi Arabia is just as good as a gentleman treating women with respect in America and not blowing up people for their opinions because there's no God to say which is which. So that's my answer. answer is, yeah, you can be a wonderful person. You just can't be a wonderful person and make sense of what you're you're talking about. All right. Ben asks, damn it, would that guy leave me alone? You know, he's, oh, no, maybe it's a different Ben. (laughs) The question is, Has there been an artistic movement that embraces conservative values? There have been so many art movements that are overwhelmingly liberal, I find it difficult to believe there would be any room for conservative artwork. Well, first of all, that's a great question, because this is one of the things that I hear from conservatives all the time. I hear that the culture has been taken over, that there are no good conservative works. I want you to think about this for a minute. First of all, most artistic movements are, you're right, radical. Most artistic movements are Uh, culture critical, artistic, traditional critical, they usually come about when there's been some, already been some major shift in the culture and then they presage a shift of the culture that is coming. So they usually are, I wouldn't say liberal or or leftist, I would just say radical in some way. They can be radically conservative, but they're often not, they're often not. However, however, art is created by individuals and conservatives are very big on individualism. Conservatives don't do movements, you know. That's one of the problems with the conservative movement. It's like herding cats. Conservatives don't do movements. So it's individuals who who make art, and there's plenty of conservative art around. Let me let me just consider this for a minute, because you know I write and I write screenplays and I write novels. David Mamet, probably the most important playwright in America a conservative. He came out a couple years ago, maybe 10 years ago, as a conservative. Tom Stoppard, the greatest living playwright, and from my opinion, one of the greatest living writers in, in Britain, he came out as a Thatcher conservative. And he was blacklisted for it. He was very badly attacked for it. Cormac McCarthy, He has never come out because he wants to win the Nobel Prize. (laughs) And so he's not he's not. But if that guy's not a conservative, I will eat my shoes. That guy is a conservative. I mean, just read, you know. No country for old men. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. You know, this is no country for old men, because old men have values. And as the guy says in the book and in the movie, he says the minute somebody dyes his hair purple, everything is and stop saying sir and ma'am, everything falls apart. That's what he says. Christopher Nolan. No question about it. Those three Dark Knight movies are the most conservative movies ever made. Biggest director, I mean, at least one of the biggest directors out there. <coughs> conservative. Clint Eastwood, of course, has been around forever, kind of a, a libertarian. There's stuff we need. There's stuff. Artists, I think conservative artists need. We need an infrastructure. We need awards. We need review venues. We need support. We need open support. We need people. We need a Fox News on the intellectual side. You know, we need it. All of all of our venues, Fox News, New York Post tend to play the populist um, opinion. And we need intellectual venues that actually deal with the arts, that give awards to artists, that uplift artists, that talk about artists that, for their values as well as their art. And what we don't need is we don't need conservative preaching, we don't need religious preaching, we just need good, good art. So there's plenty of good art. It just tends to be made by individuals fighting against the current. And when all those bad leftist movies are gone, you'll still be watching The Dark Knight because it's better than other things. All right, that's our first mailbag. How'd we do? <laughs> Stuff I like. I've been talking about bestsellers that are also good books, which is just too rare. It is too rare. More nonfiction than fiction. And I've noticed that all my choices today, talking about feminism, are all, all my choices this week have been written by women. Uh, the first two are almost kind of women's novels, except they're so good that they elevate themselves to being, you know, novels for everybody, which is great. And this, I would say, is more of a boy's book than a girl's book, but it was written by Lauren Hildebrand, who is an excellent writer, and it is this book, Unbroken. If you have seen the movie of Unbroken, put it out of your mind and read the book. The movie by Angelina Jolie is it's just not any good, you know. It's just it you know, it's just flat somehow, and it doesn't deal I mean. Jesus is like the hero of this book. <laughs> like by the time Jesus arrives, it's like he's like Captain America. He's like wearing a cape by the time he, he shows up in this book. This is a book of a guy who was an Olympic runner. I think he actually shook hands with Hitler at the Jesse Owens uh, uh, Olympics. He then was captured by the Japanese and endured terrible torture. And one of the things I love about this book is I don't want to sit and read, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of torture, but she chooses just enough to let you know what this guy went through to tell you the story as it was. The story about him in, in the boat before he was rescued, unbelievable, one of the most exciting adventures real-life adventures I have ever read, and the resolution of this story is heartbreaking. It is just, I mean, heartbreaking in a good way. I mean, just uplifting, heartbreaking. It'll destroy it. Great book, unbroken. If you saw the movie, forget it. Read the book. All right, one more day. You know, I don't talk about the clavenless weekend anymore because I feel like we're just gone into the clavenless world at this point. <laughs> the world has become so dark and difficult that it just feels clavenless all the time. But it's not clavenless here on the Andrew Claven Show. So come back again tomorrow. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. <laughs>